Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi everyone, this is Amanda Ventura from the University of Cincinnati. I'm here today with Dr. Gail D'Onofrio, the founding chairperson at Yale University. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. I'm sure that everyone will be very excited to hear from you. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Excellent. And so starting with your role as the founding chairman of the emergency medicine program at Yale in 2009, could you touch on what were some of the biggest challenges when you were starting the program there or the the department? Well, the biggest challenge is that we weren't a department. So Mm -hmm. we were under the Department of Surgery for years. I think that it really initiated our first person who came to start emergency medicine was in the early 1900s and 1990s, I should say. Mm -hmm. And then I came in 96, and that was the first year that the residency started at Yale. It was difficult all around because it's like your hands are tied and there's Mm -hmm. a blindfold over you because everything is happening through another department. You're really not getting the information that you need. Promotions were difficult, and at that time, promotions at Yale, there were caps on certain promotions. Mm -hmm. And so why would somebody who's a department chair that's really has nothing to do with emergency medicine, why Mm -hmm. would they go out on a limb and and try to help someone and promote someone? Mm -hmm. Um, It really wasn't on their screen. It was never on their screen. So that was the barrier. Once that we became a department, it was like, you know, everything was freed. You were now part of everything. You were part of all the emails. You were part of the discussions that happened within Yale. And uh, it was a long haul getting there. You can just really very evidence-based look at what happened to our department. After that, we were able to attract people. We were able to retain people. We were able to get funding. We were able to do millions of different things that we could not do while we were under another department. Mm -hmm. In those early days as a department, is there anything looking back on it now that you would have done differently? I think the hardest part was recruiting people. It's really hard to recruit experienced people. Mm -hmm. Because one, they can be in the times of their lives that their children are such ages that Mm -hmm. they don't want to move, um, Mm -hmm. and particularly even more so for women than men. But either way, it's a difficult time for mid-level people to move. And so I don't know if I would do something differently, but that was a really hard thing is trying to find how am I going to get people here in leadership positions once we became a department. And that took longer than I'd hoped it it was mm-hmm. going to be, but eventually worked out, but it did. And I ended up taking people that just had great potential. And I think that really mm-hmm. worked out and grow people from within. Excellent. Something that I, in particular, am excited to hear your take on, you have an impressive number of grants. You are well-known in the research world. Mm-hmm. And what I'm fascinated to know is how do you juggle the research that you're known for and your role as the chair of your department? It's not easy. So I just want to say (laughs) that. And it's not that anyone should feel like this is something they want to do all at once. But remember, Mm -hmm. it happened over a period of time. Because I was at Yale to begin with, 
I had my team in place. I have mm-hmm. a phenomenal group of team players that are from the Department of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry, and that I work with. And then I have developed great research associates that are phenomenal, mm-hmm. that actually do most of the work. And so once I had that team in place, I'm able to work with them. I could not have gone to another place mm-hmm. and like start over again and then become a chair and do all this. It just never would have worked. So I was really fortunate that that whole team was in place and my trajectory and my goals and my research plan was really in place. Sometimes when people start as researchers, they do a research project, but they don't have a plan mm-hmm. involved. And that's like where you're going to go from one place to another. So that was all kind of developed in my head. It may take little different changes as it goes along. It was always in substance use disorders, mm-hmm. a lot of work in alcohol. And then I was fortunate that I started doing work in opiates before the crisis was even escalating mm-hmm. anymore. And so that worked out fine. So mm-hmm. with having those people, I'm better able to integrate that with my day job, as I call it. However, <laughs> it's a really difficult day job. And so I do work all the time. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that's great. I'm glad that you said juggle and not balance because there's no such thing. I have triplets. My children are now 28, though, so I got to a period where they're, you know, they're launched and they're Mm -hmm. fine. I have a a husband who has a very difficult job, and he travels a lot, and he's in New York a lot, so he's not home all the time, and so I pretty much work all the time, Mm -hmm. and that's how it goes. But it's important to try to do both because as a chair, the most important thing to me is developing my faculty. Mm-hmm. And most important to me is really growing the next generation of researchers. And so I'm committed to doing that. And they all kind of fit together in some ways. And I have great vice chairs, whether that's a operational vice chair, Dr. Ulrich or Dr. Bernstein, who's my academic chair, and Dr. Baco, who's my faculty. But these people do amazing things and amazing directors of, of education. And so they're doing their thing and the department can run. Excellent. Well, your comment about growing the next generation of researchers is a perfect segue for our next question. As a long-standing mentor to those interested in research, what advice can you give to medical students, residents, junior faculty looking to really make their entrance or start their path? into research. So I have this thing that's called the five P's of research and Mm -hmm. for success. And the first one, and they've changed a little bit the P's over the years, but the very first one is really preparation and Mm -hmm. that you need to have taken these courses. It's not so much the degree as it is the courses so that you really have a robust quantitative and qualitative skills and you know how to evaluate things, you know, how to, whatever it is that you need to do. So preparation and getting that is really important. And that is not necessarily, again, the degree, but that you have those skills. Sometimes people come with, with degrees and they don't have those skills. Mm-hmm. So then I send them back to our kind of boot camp that, that Yale does as part of our old RWJ, which is now the National Scholars Program. They have this boot camp in July and August. It runs nine to five, and it's a very, very robust mm-hmm. course of really quantitative work. And people say, oh, I've done that. I say, no, 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 you need to go to this course, and you need to, I need to know that you're prepared. So the preparation is the most important. You can't step away from from that. And then I go, you have to have a passion. 
You have to have a passion for something because it is really hard, which brings you to the other P's, which are kind of like perspiration and perseverance. They're kind of together. It takes a huge amount of perseverance because you're going to, I, I put in a lot of grants I didn't I put in a lot of papers. I put in a lot of things that never got where I wanted them to go. And so that was difficult, but you just have to know that you have an idea. I'm going to move this forward. And then there are peeps, which I call peeps or people. All right. (laughs) So those are everybody. Those are your mentors. Those are the people that you team with. Those are that group of people. And we shouldn't look for one mentor because that is very rare. It's often a lab. Right. So you will get things from different people. My first person that really helped me was a person in internal medicine, Jeff Salmon from BU. And he, I did a fellowship with him and a SAMHSA fellowship with him. And he actually said things to me that I had wished five years ago. Why didn't anybody tell me this? So one of these things was I did a lot of educational work prior and I worked with the education department at Boston University and really good stuff. It never got accepted at SAM. And so I therefore thought that, oh my goodness, can't be good. And I didn't publish it. And he would say, who cares what they, who cares what's presented? He said, this, this was good work. You should have published it. So the first thing is that you, you do your work you, and you publish it. The most important thing in the world is publishing because that gets your work disseminated. Mm-hmm. We get grants and everybody loves that. But the purpose of the grant is to do the work, right? The end point is not the money for the grant. The end point is the dissemination and the changing of practice from something. He would oftentimes stop going to any meeting, stay home and, and write your paper. It's the best two days you've ever found. And you should just get that out there. So I wished I had known those things. I wished I had known that you had to get this team together because I started writing my own statistical section and that was a joke, you know, so I had to meet, you know, these really famous statisticians and co-investigators and I read what they write. Even today I go, I don't even know what they're saying, right? I don't even understand what they're talking about, but that's okay. That's their job, right? Mm -hmm. So you're working with them and that you engage your statisticians. So right away, that can be a co-investigator so that you understand how to develop the project and how it's going to work and what the outcomes are going to be. So peeps are the most other thing. And the last thing is pain. People have to be able to withstand a lot of pain. And, you know, I get rejected even now. You know, my coworkers and I who are full professors, who are well-funded, mm-hmm. we can put something in and for whatever reason it won't get scored. And we stand and talk about stuff. This is not possible. But it happens. We get, you know, papers that are rejected. You get grants that come back. And you just have to say, this is important. I just didn't do a good job of talking to the committee about it. Mm-hmm. You know, the review group. I just mm-hmm. didn't do enough work in selling this I have to read what they said I have to appreciate that and I have to go back and Mm -hmm. maybe it's not this institute maybe it's not this funder maybe it's another funder you have to be able to say I got to be able to deal with this Mm -hmm. and you can have a lot of rejections until you finally hit and once you do hit it's easier to get other things but if you have a great mentor who can help you you can be on your so that's it. Those are the piece. I've picked up on a theme of surrounding yourself with the right people. Mm-hmm. How did you find your mentors early in your career? As I said, it's not easy because it wasn't one mentor. I was really fortunate in that 
I was at a place uh, such mm-hmm. as Boston City Hospital, which I always wanted to do. I always wanted to do research. I've always wanted to work with vulnerable populations. Then I found people. And it was, like I said, it's not one mentor. I just went to different people and they added to part of my learning curve. So when I met Jeff Samet, who I did a year of medicine first, because at Boston City, when we first started, it was a two through four program. So Jeff Samet was my chief resident when I was an intern and he knew what I wanted to do and the questions that I had thought as an intern those questions in my first paper was on recurrent alcohol-related seizures. And that was because when I was an intern working, all they did would tell me with all these people who come in with seizures is, uh, give them five days of Dilan. Five days of Dilan, and they'll define it. Why is that? What's that? And so that was a burning question. And and then I talked to him about it, and I talked to other people, and we, we did it. And it actually, without mm-hmm. any funding, $5,000 from BU have gotten in the New England Journal. It was like, oh my God, this is like amazing that this happened, but that was like a lot of sweat and whatever. Then I moved to Yale and I moved to Yale really all due to my husband. He was working at General Electric. They recruited him there for another huge job and I had needed to go. And I didn't know where I was going to go. And I ended up, Yale was about to start a residency program. They didn't have a slot. I went there to work purely in the hospital, continuing my research that was still going on at BU. But Dr. Sam at at BU had a best friend at Yale, and his name was Patrick O'Connor, who both of them now are, by the way, the chiefs of internal medicine in both institutions. Mm-hmm. So he said, I'm going to invite you. We've been, to, he sent me to meetings, and I met all these famous people around the world, and, and I had met Pat O'Connor there, and he said, Pat's there. He's going to help you. So he brought me in and said, okay, what do you want to do? It was the same things that I wanted to do, but now I had somebody who really knew how to put a team together. And then he said, oh, I'm going to invite you to meet other people that are here. And I met this phenomenal, really more than a statistician, a co-investigator that's brilliant. And he's Merrick Chowalski, he's on all of my stuff. Stephanie O'Malley, who's this very accomplished uh, woman in psychiatry there, a PhD who, who has done enormous amount of work in substance use disorder. He put me in touch with her, and she was very willing to help me. And sometimes was really helpful when members of my team disagreed. And here I am, this mm-hmm. small person doing this work I had never done before, and I have all these professors disagreeing. That's how it happened. And then I met her, and she was very helpful, and, and Dr. O'Connor was very helpful. And then you meet somebody else, and there are other people from other institutions. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had mentors and learning my job as an administrator in different chairs. So you you go around and you find them. Excellent. You completed a fellowship through the Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine Program, which is specifically for women faculty at Yale University. How do you think this experience helped to shape your career today? Yeah, so ELAM is a, is a national course. It's run out of Drexel in Philadelphia, and it's an amazing opportunity that universities around the country get to to apply for one person sometimes they can put up two but it's a relatively small class so you're not sure if they're going to take two people from one institution but mm-hmm. the purpose of it is to really build leaders in the field of any, women leaders and they want them to be deans and ceos and whatever and i was just really lucky in a particular time that i had a sabbatical and i was only an associate which i think now you couldn't 
do that. But at the mm-hmm. time, I wasn't a chair. I was a research director. The dean at the time said, okay, I'll put you up. And I was really lucky that I got to go to the course. And it teaches you leadership skills. It teaches you almost like a little mini MBA about mm-hmm. how to put budgets together. But more importantly, it lets you partner with everyone in your institution. Your homework was to go back to your institution, meet with your CFO, mm-hmm. ask your CFO how the funds flow, how do things work, what goes on, go to your chair, how does this work, how do you do this? And then it gets you to meet with all these people around your university so they start to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And that can be the president of the university, but you can put your list together. And because it's such a big program, everybody is really engaged in helping the woman. So they get you get to speak with them and you couldn't just call them up the dean calls them all up for you and says here's you know Dr. Nafri she's our new ELAM person you need to talk to her so you learn all this incredible stuff but in, in more even than the education you network with all these phenomenal women several of which I'm still in touch with because you're put in uh, groups regional groups working groups that we did webinars with and and kept and this was a long time ago so now it's more sophisticated but there have been several chairs women chairs have gone through this and it's an unbelievable experience they dissect you they do 360s on you before you go they have a psychologist who meets with you they read your cv they tell you what you need to do to get promoted and really the trajectory of your career. They help you lay it out. So it's a phenomenal opportunity. And most of the women deans have all come from Elon. Interesting. Well, you've been one of the trailblazers for women in leadership in academic emergency medicine. And what advice would you give to female medical students, residents, young faculty who are looking to further their careers, be it research or administration or really anything in our field? So I think the the most important thing is to kind of figure out at first what you want to do. You may change paths, but, you know, have a general direction of where you want to go. Set out your year goal and your few years goals further on, and don't let things distract you from those goals. So women definitely have more challenges, right? You're generally, not always, the primary caregiver. If you're not, you're the one who's orchestrating the show. And you want to be home. You want to do things. So Mercy Medicine is phenomenal because I just worked all nights. I was a room mother for my son who desperately wanted my girls to want me near their rooms, but my son (laughs) did. And the teacher would say, I feel so bad, ask you something because you're the only working mother in this whole neighborhood. But I can make it happen. You know, the grocery store is open 24 hours a day. So if you need something, I'll get it for you. So you really just need to know that you can navigate your way through this period. And there are parts of your lives that are much more labor intensive when children are young. But children need you more when they're in middle school and when they're after fourth grade. So as long as people understand that it's not this baby time. It's baby time if you have someone loving with your child. They're going to know it's your their mom. You're going to be fine. But you have to start doing, be very selective of the things that you want to do to get you in your career. So I worked part-time initially because I had three babies. I had to make very realistically a certain amount of money or I couldn't have mm-hmm. two nannies to take care of my children if I wasn't there. So I needed to be able to pay for that. On the other hand, I could not do my academics and work three clinical shifts, which was 
what was happening at Boston City at that time. So I chose to take less pay to work two clinical shifts and do my research. By the end of my third year, my boss, Peter Moyer, is wonderful, actually, I should include him as one of my mentors. As, as being chair, I think of everything that he had done. And he came back and he said, I did a really bad thing to you. He said, I've now looked at everything you've done and you do more than anyone here. And somehow you're getting paid like a lot less. So he said, I'm just going to keep you at the two clinical shifts and you're going to get paid full salary because you're doing writing all these papers. I was doing the education curriculum for the residents. I was like, because you can do that at home. I'm fine. I you know, it's more of where I could be more flexible with my timing. So I would tell women to set a path of what you wanted and don't just take any task, right? Decide what you want to do. And that could be in education, that can be in research. But if you really want a research career, you need to be on that. And, and sometimes you'll be offered by chairs like, you know what, you can keep all this money, but I need all this stuff done. And to the extent that you could do it with the other things, that's okay. But if you can't, just don't keep taking tasks that are, are important tasks. And, you know, we all need them done, but you need to focus on what it is that you need and then where you fit in where the department needs. So you're going to have to do something. But an example might be that they offered me, why don't you become like the associate resident director right up? Because I had done education before. I don't, no, I don't want that job. Are you kidding me? I can't do that job. That's really important. And that requires doing all this, interviewing. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't do that. So I, I just don't want to do that. I'll just work my two shifts. I'm getting less but I'm doing my research and I'll do the curriculum because I had to do something because they needed something and I can do that because I can develop that at home and I just have to be there during the day or whatever, make sure it's happening. It's very different and isolated versus being an associate residency director that I thought was like requiring a lot of my time. So basically that's it. Go for something and keep your eye on that ball and don't be distracted by all these other tasks. We like to fix things, women, and we can. But just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? So be really selective, but also being a good partner. You you can't say, no, I'm not going to do anything. But pick those things that are of advantage to what you want. So Mm -hmm. if you're doing research, then maybe you're working with some of the residents and doing their research projects, or maybe you're setting together a curriculum uh, for the residents for that portion, but it's all sort of headed in your direction and your trajectory. Excellent. Dr. Tanafrio, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to spend time talking to you today. On behalf of the medical students and the residents of Rams, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to share some of your thoughts with us. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me.